My guest is Tim Pratt, the author of the short story collection Little Gods from Prime Books. His new novel from Bantam Spectra is The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl. Welcome to the program, Tim. Thanks for having me. Tim, I'd like to ask you, first off, this novel is set in Santa Cruz, so I'd like you to set the novel up for us. Give us an idea of what we're dealing with here, because it is strange. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the protagonist is a woman named Marzi McCarty, who's a night manager at a coffee house, which uh, people who read the book who live in Santa Cruz might notice has a suspicious similarity to Cafe Pergolesi, which is downtown and where most of the novel was written, actually. I lived here for about a year. Uh, I moved here in 2000, drove across the country from North Carolina, and settled down here. And for the first month I was here, I had no job, so I just wandered around Santa Cruz. And I got to know the town. I hung out in the cafes and the bookstores and the beaches. You know, went over to see butterflies. You know, I went to the boardwalk. I used to run on the beach every morning. I just totally fell in love with the place. So when I wanted to start writing a new novel, it was the obvious place to set it. So. Santa Cruz is as much a character in the book as any of the people are. I think it's as important to the texture of the book, too. And what I really wanted to evoke was my love for this place. I mean, it's really a love song to Santa Cruz. I'd like to talk a little bit about how the myths of the Old West inform this story. And also, this novel is really a spider web. All the themes intersect and support one another really well. It's fantastically uh, intricate Thanks. once you start get into it. And so I'd like to talk first off about Marzi is a comic artist who creates a series of comic books, right? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Marzi is the writer and the artist for a, for a series of comic books called The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl. Uh, and it's basically a weird Western. I mean, it's essentially the comic is about a woman who discovers a door in the wall of her apartment, the Western Wall, that opens onto a sort of mythic version of the Old West where Aaron Burr, managed to go to the West and found his own empire with stolen gold and where there are herds of skeletal buffalo and where there are murderous hanging judges and where the Comanche have made a deal with dark demonic forces in order to maintain their stranglehold on the West. And so basically I got to play with all sorts of fun supernatural stuff. I got to play with, uh, you know, I read a lot about the Old West, so I got to play with real Western outlaws and people like Charles Hatfield, the Rainmaker, who some people hold responsible with flooding a town in the West because they didn't pay him, so he just brought torrential rains. In all likelihood, there probably just happened to be torrential rains, but it did wonders for his reputation. So characters like that, characters like Pearl Hart, who was a robber queen, uh, she was the last stagecoach robber in the West. I had read about all these people, and my natural tendency is to mythologize things. My natural tendency is to bring in spirits. And deserts from all over the world have all sorts of spirits. You know, you have jinn, and you have, you know, the Egyptian gods. And I sort of got this idea that it would be fun to write a book about sort of the medicine lands, about that magic place, the real fundamental world beyond the world that we see. And I thought it would be fun to make it a mythic desert, to have it be filled with all those sorts of things. So when I think of deserts being American and having grown up watching John Wayne movies at my granddaddy's house on weekends, you know, I think of Westerns. So having grown up steeped in Westerns and watching Western movies, and my dad was a fan of Louis L'Amour and Zane Grey, so I read all these books. And just bringing that love for Westerns to my own personal experience, having fled from North Carolina, moved across the country to start a new life in the West. I mean, all that go West young man stuff, all that frontier stuff, all that stuff about seizing your life and making a new life for yourself somewhere far away. You know, I mean, I essentially drove until I hit the ocean and I ran out of places to go and I wound up in Santa Cruz and it was wonderful. So I tried to bring all that stuff to, to the book. In terms of themes in the book, I guess it's, I mean, it's a lot about art. It's a lot about high and low art and how art can transform your life. 
I certainly feel that art has transformed my life. Tell us a little bit about one uh, outlaw you mentioned that I thought was particularly interesting was Black Bart Bowles. <laughs> I really like that story. Black, so Black Bart's yeah. great. Yeah, Black Bart was a stagecoach robber who had such a sense of theater. He was known for, he would rob people and he would recite bad poetry, this doggerel that he wrote himself. And he was like, a cre he was a creature custom made for the dime novels. One of the things I love about the West is the way it was being mythologized, even as it was being lived. It was amazing because you'd have people who were living in kind of a lawless, dirty place. And as they were living there, they were writing dime novels in which they romanticized their own experiences and sold them to people back east. I mean, the Old West, in terms of when it was really the Wild West, is a very short period of time. You know, it was pretty quickly actually civilized, you know, but for a while there it was really lawless, and people were aware that they were living in someplace wonderful. So you had characters like Black Bart. You had characters like Pearl Hart who, you know, <laughs> who had grown up in Canada, was Canadian, saw a Wild West show. This is essentially after the heyday of the Wild West. She saw a Wild West show and thought, that's great, I want to be a sharpshooter, I want to be a robber. So she bought into that mythology and came and became part of the mythology, was the last person to ever rob a stagecoach in the West. And the That larger-than-life sense, maybe it's something to do with how big the sky is out here. I don't know. One thing this book centers around is compulsive and obsessive personalities. Mm -hmm. You tie together the drive to create, the drive to d destroy, the drive to conform and the drive to diverge and rebel. Tell us a little bit about how you created these personalities and are they people you know? Are they people you are? Speaking as an artist, you have to be obsessive, you know? Uh, any success I've had as a writer is because I'm monomaniacal. When I was younger, I was interested in lots of things, interested in cooking and visual arts, which I have no aptitude for, but I have great respect for visual artists. Uh, you know, I was obsessed with music, but ultimately it all fell away and what I got into was writing, you know, and I spend pretty much all my time thinking about writing and it's probably not healthy. So for me to think about writing an artist, you know, I have a character named Denis in the book who's sort of a, he's a villain, but I like to think he's a sympathetic villain. He's essentially the, the viewpoint for the opposition in most of the book. He, you get a lot of stuff from his point of view. Um, in, in a lot of ways, he's only out for himself, which is perhaps the most villainous thing you can be. But he's completely obsessive-compulsive. But he's aware that he's obsessive-compulsive. He's not a dumb guy. He's educated. He knows that when he finds himself compelled to count or compelled to wash his hands or compelled to keep every speck of dirt out of his house, you know, he, he knows that it's not normal behavior. But he's also an artist. And I think that, that same, the same things that make life difficult for you to live if you're obsessive are things that can help you be an artist because it's the ability to shut things out. It's the ability to focus intently on stuff that objectively maybe isn't that important. You know, ultimately creating art, is it that important to keeping you fed and housed? I mean, if you're lucky, you can make a living doing it, but really it's kind of a weird occupation to devote all your time to. You know, it doesn't, doesn't obviously help other people right away. You know, it doesn't put food in your mouth, but if if you're obsessed, if you're focused on it, it can give you a satisfaction like nothing else. So yeah, I did explore that. Uh, the book is largely about obsession and about phobias, you know, about worries, about how, how the Tell neurotic... Tell us about some of the phobias. Yeah, sure, there's lots of phobias. Uh, my main character, Marzi, begins the book with, uh, with acute agoraphobia. Well, she begins the book having gotten over a bout of acute agoraphobia. For a while, she was terrified of opening doors for a very reasonable reason, I think, which is that you're never quite sure what's going to be on the other side of any door you open. You know, it's sort of became a stand-in for all the terrifying stuff of the unknown, also tied into earlier trauma and plot point stuff that I'd rather not spoil, but there was a good reason she was afraid of opening doors. Uh, there's another character, Denis, who is obsessed with cleanliness and has a real problem with messy stuff and, of course, I had a lot of fun in the novel forcing him into incredibly messy situations, like essentially dealing with golems, people made of mud, stuff like that. That was a lot of fun. 
There's a character who's terrified that she's becoming a pyromaniac. In fact, she's being acted upon by supernatural forces who want her to start fires. She is genuinely hearing voices in her head that tell her she should start a lot of fires. She naturally worries that this is a sign of insanity. You know, basically, anytime you write a fantasy, you have to deal with what I've always called the blot of mustard factor, you know? You have that moment in A Christmas Carol where Ebenezer Scrooge first sees the ghost of his dead partner, and he thinks, this isn't real. I eat some bad potato. It was a blot of bad mustard. This is why I'm seeing ghosts. You have to have that moment, I think, in a contemporary fantasy where your characters have the very reasonable acknowledgement that maybe they're just going crazy. You know, because if you see the sort of things that my characters in this book saw, I, my first thing would be to check myself into a psychiatric hospital, probably, to make sure I didn't have horrible tumors. So you have to deal with that, but you want to get it out of the way quickly so that the characters can engage with these things that, in the context of the novel, are very real issues, very real threats. So dealing with insanity, dealing with worries about neuroses, and then ultimately deciding whether this is really happening or not, whether I'm crazy or not, this is the physical direct experience I'm having and I have to grapple with it, I have to deal with it. Dealing with neuroses and phobias seemed like a good way to get that blot of mustard factor dealt with. It's interesting the way you cover the range of reactions that people have to what are in the novel real supernatural experiences. And I'd like you to discuss about that, particularly one thing I think, and we've seen this in other works too, is the idea that it naturally gets erased from the memory. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, if you look at people who have childhood trauma, quite often it gets repressed. And it's not always a big, deep, you know, repressed memories that can be recovered thing. It can be as simple as just not thinking about it. And a lot of the book is about Marzi's inability to repress anymore. Before the events of the novel even happened, she has seen some stuff that is frankly unbelievable and difficult to deal with, and her reaction was to just forget about it. If she thinks of it all, she thinks of it as a bad dream. But eventually more and more stuff happens. It's too much for her to repress. So she comes to terms with it. That doesn't mean any of the other characters do, though. So the other characters who are experiencing stuff for the first time are still dealing with those repression issues. And so when they see impossible things, they have a variety of coping mechanisms to tell themselves that they didn't really happen, you know? Oh, well, yes, it looked like that was a woman made of mud that I kicked in half, you know, because she's made of mud. But that can't have actually happened. It was dark. I was scared. There was a lot of adrenaline. This person was attacking me. I probably just knocked them down and thought that I kicked them in half. You know, uh, there are characters in this cafe, which is sort of the, it's called Genius Loci. It's the focal point for this dark supernatural force that's trying to emerge back into the world again, a sort of local spirit of earthquake and wildfire and mudslide. So this spirit is trying to get in touch with people, trying to convince people that they need to open its door and let it out into this world. Most people who hear sort of the bare edge of this just flee. There's a scene that I like a lot in the novel where uh, Marzi, my main character, is just hanging out, doing her job behind the counter when suddenly everybody in the cafe just gets up and leaves without saying a word to her because they've all sensed something. And rather than deal with it or question it or figure out what it is, they just run. I think that's probably what most of us would do. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of the, the sexual matters in this novel. Your main character, one of your main characters, is a bisexual. So, And I think yeah. you handle that really well. You handle it matter-of-factly. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, without getting too much into personal predilections, you know, omnisexuality I've always found is interesting. If nothing else, it provides for a lot more plot complications in fiction if your characters can potentially fall in love with people of either gender. Um, and I wanted to set up a lot of the closeness in the relationship. To me, a lot of this book is about the importance of the community that you make. You know, it's not so much the family that you come from as the family that you build for yourself. So I have three characters who become great friends through the course of this novel and come to depend on one another. And one of them is Lindsay, who's, who is the bisexual character and who's one of my favorite characters. 
just every scene with her was a joy to write because she's one of those sparkling sort of effervescent people. But at the same time, she has some depths and she's a lot of the sparkle and effervescence is trying to hide deeper trauma. So with her, I was able to have her be in love with my main character, Marzi, have her have romantic entanglements with another woman who was unwittingly becoming an agent for the villain of the book. I was able to have her have sort of some romantic flirtations with my main character's love interest, who was a guy. Uh, it just, it, it allowed for a lot of complications. And also, you know, I, I don't try to have a lot of agenda pushing or anything in my books. I just try to tell good stories. But I know people who are bisexual, and it's not a huge thing. You know, it's just part of their lives. They just date different kinds of people. So I feel like it's perfectly reasonable to have a character in a book who is bisexual and have it not be a book about bisexuality. Have it not be a book about the character's sexuality. You know, just have it be an incidental thing. Doing my part for, uh, for global tolerance, I suppose. This book is also about comics. Mm-hmm. You mentioned one point your character mentions that comics don't often do love stories. This novel in itself is, in a sense, a love story about comics, how much you love comics yourself. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit some of your influences and how the plotting and form of comics inform the novel itself. Absolutely. I, I think it was R. Crumb who said that comics are words and pictures. You can do anything with words and pictures. I'm a guy who can't draw pictures at all, and it's always been a a deep pain for me that I can't express myself visually. I can see the pictures in my head, just I've never had the training or the inclination or whatever to get it out on the page. And, you know, I grew up reading superhero comics, grew up reading all the stuff anybody reads. And then in college, it was the heyday of Vertigo with DC, you know, it was the heyday. Sandman was out. Preacher, which was a huge influence on this book by uh, Dylan and Ennis. Preacher is a crazy, melodramatic, over-the-top Western written by a couple of Brits. Uh, it's it's just got cowboys and, you know, evil immortal gunslingers and stuff. And I certainly tried not to consciously steal from them too much. But I think that, that sense of scope and the Western is mythic is something that Preacher helped me with. You know, Alan Moore's comics, Warren Ellis's comics. In terms of what I love about column comics, it's how, how direct it is. You can say so much with a picture. No, you can have, I, I love in comics the big splash, splash pages for huge moments, you know, where you get the big canvas and you see the characters and you see a moment and you see a realization and there's no words. You know, what I work with is words and so it amazes me when I can see something really important in a story revealed just by the pictures just standing there. And it's static pictures, it's not even movies, you know. The best comics, I think, can equal the level of fine art. You look at somebody like Alex, uh, Alex Ross who does DC stuff a lot, you know, books like his mythology. You know, he's doing superheroes the way that classical painters did human figures. You know, he's really investing it with that. He's painting Superman the way people used to paint gods. Uh, So comics have been a huge influence. And so, yeah, having a protagonist who draws and writes her own comic book is probably a little wishful fulfillment. I kind of wish I could write and draw my own comic books. But it'd be fun to make Ranger Girl into a real comic someday. Do you have plans for that? It would be fun. I haven't talked to anybody about it. Um, I don't know how to write comic scripts, so I'd have to learn how to do that. Then I'd have to find an artist who could stand to work with me because I'm kind of an obsessive perfectionist about my own work. It would probably be annoying to collaborate with across mediums. But, yeah, I have actually have have written, have thought about writing spinoff stories set in the world of Marzi's comic, in the world of The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl, the comic book, not the novel. And I've written one called uh, Bluebeard and the White Buffalo that's about Ranger Girl who's, you know, out there in the back 40 of the world dealing with supernatural stuff. It's her teaming up with Gilda Ray, who was Joan of Arc's uh, battle captain back in the day, and who also inspired Bluebeard because he was probably a child killer and worshipped the devil. He's an interesting character, so in my comic, I in the story, I made him immortal, and so he's still around, and he's a buffalo hunter. He's out hunting buffalo, and Ranger Girl sort of clashes with him and works with him 
And so there, this is a story that has, you know, subterranean albino Native American tribes who worship dark mushroom gods and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. It would be fun to, to turn some of that stuff into comics. Oh, another comic I should mention is uh, Richard Moore's Far West. He's, he's better known for a book called Boneyard, which is sort of a fun, silly thing. But he, he had a great short-lived comic called Far West that's about a supernatural West with elves and shapeshifters, and it's basically about an elf bounty hunter. <laughs> I'm not normally a fan of elves, but it's a really fun book. Let's talk a little bit about the land, both real and virtual. You do a lot of things with the land here, both the landscape of Santa Cruz and the landscape of your, the medicine lands, you call it. You also refer to it as the fairy and some other things. The that, west beyond the west, the, the west land be- beyond the lands. Yes. Yeah. This is an interesting concept. So tell us a little bit about how you draw the lines between the real land and the land beyond the land. Well, one of the things that I always found fascinating about Santa Cruz once I started to research the history of the place, and when you research the history of Santa Cruz, the first thing you hit these days is Loma Prieta and how it changed the face of the town in 89 when the earthquake hit, and looking at pictures of what downtown used to look like, and looking at pictures of the aftermath, and reading about mudslides, and reading about the times cliffs have collapsed, you know, down on the beach and stuff. It's sort of, I realized that a lot of the beauty of this place is tied up inherently with the dangers of the place, you know? We have the beautiful mountains, which are the result of tectonic activity. You know, we have the beautiful sea cliffs, sheer sheer sea cliffs by the beach, which are kind of dangerous. They can collapse on people. So this idea of a beautiful place that is threatened by wildfire, by earthquake, by mudslide, I think beautiful places that are threatened are even more precious. So in in terms of the, the local place, you know, obviously Santa Cruz is not a desolate place, but it is a few bad accidents away from potential desolation. So... I found that interesting. Uh, In terms of the medicine lands, basically one of the things that happens in the book is that the characters find an entryway into this mythic landscape, this this land beyond the lands, this fundamental world. It's the place where the god lives. This is something that comes up in a lot of fantasy fiction. Uh, Charles DeLint does some interesting stuff with this. Uh, His medicine lands tend to be more like twisted analogs to the world that we live in. Uh, The medicine lands in my book are a place of pure potentiality. They're a place where reality is clay. They're shaped largely by perception. The book is a lot about how artists shape perception. Because Marzi writes this comic and is kind of obsessed with westerns and with deserts and all that stuff, when she goes into this land, it takes on the form of a desert. You know, the first place she comes out into is a beaten up ghost town. She essentially winds up spending time literally in the world of her comic book. But what she realizes as she's over there is that just as she is capable of creating a world on a page with words and with pictures, she is capable of creating physical real landscapes in the medicine lands just through the power of her belief and her imagination by imagining it in such detail that it takes on reality. And it's kind of an obvious metaphor perhaps for artistic prowess, but it's one that was a lot of fun to deal with. And the medicine lands are... It's the place that this horrible spirit of desolation, the outlaw, the thing that Marzi has to struggle against, lives. You know, it's a creature that comes from a place that is, in that biblical sense, a place of formlessness and void. You know, a place that can become other things. And what it would like to do is return the rest of the world to formlessness and void, to get back to the good old days when there was nothing but magma shooting out of the earth and maybe some single-celled organisms. That was a pretty good place for it to be. So its goal is basically world destruction. It's hard to write a character sympathetically, have them be well-rounded when their goal is the utter destruction of the world. It's something that comic books tend to do better than literature. Well, one of the ways I think you do this, and when you were last speaking, I was just thinking of this, that you have a, there's a great, like a daisy chain in this book. 
obsession, from obsession to artistic obsession, from artistic obsession to revisualizing the world, from revisualizing the world to the idea of the gods and the medicine lands, and then back to the way the people would create their own lives. Tell us a little bit, was this, did you discover this as you wrote the book, or did you think, I've got all these things and I'm going to put them all in, in this big kettle? It's something of a kitchen sink book. I mean, a lot of first novels tend to dump in everything that the novelist is obsessed with, and I think that might be true of this one, too. I basically was looking at my life. You know, I had graduated from college. I had a job doing advertising in North Carolina, writing copy. It wasn't so bad. You know, I had a nice boss, but I hated the work. You know, ultimately, what I was doing was driving a consumer culture that I don't have a lot of affection for. Writing and advertising just felt kind of smarmy to me, you know? Even even trying to sell people wrenches and patio furniture, just I felt kind of dreadful about it. So I made a very conscious decision to uproot and change my life. And I threw all my crap into my little, you know, 89 Nissan Sentra, and I drove across the country, and I started a new life in a new place. I had some friends out here, but basically it was starting all over. So I did recreate my life, you know? And so this is this is... I think that's in the book. It's it's about the notion of changing your life, about creating your own world by the people that you choose to be with, by the art you choose to do, by the occupations you choose to spend time on. So to an extent it was conscious, but I, it was a really natural outgrowth of all the stuff I was struggling with at the time. You know, I came to a place where I didn't know many people. I didn't have a job when I moved out here. You know, I didn't have anything. The, the one thing that I brought with me from my old life really was the fact that I wrote and made up stories. Uh, everything was informed by that decision to uproot my life and come out here, and I think a lot of that's in the book. One of the things you do really well in this book is to balance between the metafictional meta-story and the melodrama of the, the, the pulpy fun of it. People have accused me of being postmodern in this book, which is something I never set out to do, but I guess I can see what they're talking about, because there is the level at which life is not a comic book. That's an observation that some of the characters have in the book that life is not four colors or two colors you know life tends to be more complex one of the things i had a lot of fun with in this book was something that's kind of bugged me in fantasy literature is the tendency to anthropomorphize natural phenomenon like you see it in old warner brother cartoons where the north wind is a guy who blows on stuff and is mad and blustery and a blowhard but i i got to thinking about what it would actually be like if you gave some sort of a natural phenomenon intention and consciousness. So I decided to give earthquakes and wildfire and mudslides intention and consciousness. What they would want to do then is shake stuff and dump mountains of mud on things and burn stuff. It's not doesn't make for a terribly interesting character. So the way to make it a more interesting character for me was to do exactly what people do when they anthropomorphize these natural phenomenon. To have a character who's an artist who looks at this creature, this supernatural being, this force of destruction I can't comprehend it on the level of being just a supernatural force of destruction, so she begins to shape it with her perception. Because she's obsessed with comic books, she perceives it as an outlaw, as a nasty, vicious, cigar-chewing cowboy who likes to shoot people, you know, who's just evil and avaricious. I may have gotten away from the thread of your original question, but... <laughs> That's okay, because actually you brought up something else I was interested in, was the idea that nobody calls an earthquake or a fire, or a force of nature, a murderer. Exactly, yeah. And, well, yeah, one of the things that I that I do in this book is there's a character, one of my favorite characters, her name is Jean, and something very bad happens to Jean, and Jean essentially comes back at this evil god's pleasure. She comes back as sort of a, a being made of mud, a golem. 
And she has this revelation about partway through where she's doing just awful things at the God's behest. She has a revelation about halfway through where she realizes that she's become a natural disaster. You know, she's not murdering people. She's not a killer. She's just something bad that happens to people. She's a natural disaster. It's kind of diluted because she still is a conscious being, even though she's been transformed. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a valid point. Earthquakes aren't murderers. One of the things that my main character does is take something that probably isn't inherently evil, but is just something bad that happens sometimes. It's really only bad from the point of view of the people that it hurts. There's nothing inherently evil about it. And she turns it into something that's not very complicated, into a very one-dimensional comic book villain. Some people have complained that the outlaw is not a nuanced villain, and it's absolutely not a nuanced villain. It's a comic book supervillain that wants bent on world destruction, you know? I, I tried to make some of my other villains, some of the collaborators with this great evil, be a bit more sympathetic and nuanced, but, you know, if, if people are going to complain that the outlaw is not a nuanced character, all I can do is say, well, yeah. There's a lot of interesting imagery in this novel. Seed, planting seeds is one of the things that, that happens a lot. Tell us a little bit about that. People shape natural spaces. I mean, one of the things that, one of the singularities in human culture was the invention of agriculture was you didn't have to be a nomad anymore. You could find a place you loved and make it blossom. You know, you could shape your own environment. And this is a book that is in many ways about shaping your environment, shaping your life, you know, shaping the experiences of others for good or for bad. So sure, I, I tend to not be really conscious in imagery like that, but I do find that after I read a finished a book that I've finished, I see that stuff comes up a lot, and there is a lot of that in this book. Uh, there are a lot of images like that. There's the notion of doors and doors sort of standing in for impossibility for uh, possibilities opening up before you for potentiality. There's you know imagery of obviously all the old Western imagery of deserts and dust, and the imagery of planting seeds, and it's not stuff that I consciously set out to put in or say, well, okay, I need, f you know, five instances of planting seeds in this book, and I should put them about 50 pages apart. It's nothing that conscious, but this stuff does sort of tend to tend to appear by itself. One of the notions that you came up with in this book is the differentiation between the two godlets, you call them. One simply wants to erase, and the other one has a slightly different slant. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of times in fantasy books where you have a bad god, there's a good god that comes along and gives aid and succor to their characters, and they tend to, to not be as directly helpful as perhaps the evil god is to its followers. But this good god will come and will give counsel or will give power or will give suggestions and help your characters. And again, I always felt that was too simplistic. I got to thinking about deserts and the different sides of deserts. So I have one nasty spirit that is perceived as the outlaw that just wants to destroy all life and grind everything down and get rid of all human things. And I've got this other spirit that my characters encounter who is a, an enemy to this god, but isn't a friendly thing that loves life and loves blossoms and stuff. She's the spirit of hard living, is what I called her. The spirit of life that's in the desert. Because really, deserts aren't desolate, desolate wastelands for the most part. There's a lot of life in deserts. I mean, anybody who's ever seen a desert bloom after a rainstorm knows that. So this is a, a god, a spirit that believes in life in the interstices of unlivable conditions. She believes that it would be a great shame if all life were exterminated, but she doesn't want to make things good for people. You know, she just wants there to be some life that's living that only comes out at night, that only survives by virtue of the occasional rainstorm. You know, she's a, she's a very... Uh, fundamentalist kind of spirit, actually. She's not very kind. She's not very giving. You know, she believes life should be hard. So it was kind of fun to set those characters in opposition and very briefly have my 
my human protagonists think that perhaps they had found a great help and a great savior, uh, only to realize that it was going to be a little more complicated than that. It also enabled me to write a scene where there was a giant scorpion living down at the boardwalk, which was a lot of fun. One of the things that I find interesting in our conversation is you've mentioned the word fantasy a number of times. Most people, when they think of a fantasy, they think of some guys in leather breech cloths uh, toting yeah. a sword around, hopping on a horse, and uh, slugging it out on a plane full of dead people or something. Yeah. This is not exactly that kind of fantasy, is it? I don't write so much of that stuff, yeah. I am occasionally an admirer of it. There are good people who do good sort of high fantasy, medieval kind of era, otherworldly stuff. But uh, the tradition I work from is not the same as that. Well, what tradition do you work from then? That's probably a good question. Um, I grew up actually reading horror, which when you get right down to it is just contemporary fantasy where bad things happen. You know, supernatural horror is set in this world and then weird stuff starts to happen. And quite often it's very bad, gory stuff, and that's why it gets called horror. But horror is not a genre. Horror is an effect. You know, I tend to think of most of the horror novels you would think of. You know, I read Carrie when I was about eight years old, which was a formative influence. Stephen King's Dark Tower books, which also do a lot of fun stuff with westerns and were probably an influence too since I've been reading those since junior high. Edgar Allan Poe used to write these stories that were set in the real world, but weird stuff would happen. Uh, Hawthorne used to write stories that were set in this world. Weird stuff would happen. Melville did a couple of them. You know, and I'm certainly not placing myself in their company, but I think it's a venerable tradition in American literature to write about the world that we know in which weird stuff happens. It's kind of nice. You're starting to see fantasies on the bestseller list where this stuff is happening. Neil Gaiman has been huge for this. His books, American Gods and Auntie Boys, are set in the real world, and magic happens. And I, I don't know. I've never had... A lot of, aff I, I have some affection for, but I've never had much interest in writing other world fantasy where there are elves and orcs and trolls or whatever and people with huge destinies. I'm much more interested in writing about this world because I think fantasy, in fantasy you have suspension of disbelief. You have to get your characters to believe in a world where impossible stuff is happening. And honestly, I find perhaps paradoxically that setting it in the real world in a recognizable place where there are chairs and cars and roads and restaurants and things that people recognize makes perhaps the reader feel more grounded. So if you carefully inject then some magical stuff, some fantastic happenings, they are perhaps more willing to accept them because they're already grounded. You're not asking them to swallow an entire new universe in one bite. No, you're giving them the universe they know and then injecting strangeness into it. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your short stories. You're quite well known as a short story writer. Thanks. You have a collection called Little Gods from Prime Books. Tell us, how do you know when something is a short story, and how do you know when it becomes a novel? I, there's a, I, I, there's certainly a short story about Ranger Girl. Yeah. And about Marzi too, right? I actually don't know quite often until I get into it. Ranger Girl wasn't supposed to be a novel. It was supposed to be a short story. I had this fun idea. Wouldn't it be cool if I had a woman who wrote comic books and then their comic books started to come to life? I mean, ultimately, the book became more complicated than that. But that was a story idea. And it just kept going because these other characters came in. Her friends came in. And I felt I had to do them some justice and give them some backstory. And the book kept swelling and became 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 pages long. And I could have finished it up in about 100 pages which means nobody would have ever written, read it because it would have been an unsellable, unpublishable length. It would have been too long for the magazines and too short to publish as a book. So I sort of got to thinking about how it could become a novel and how to make it more complicated. And the choice for me was to give more attention to the villains, to let them not be so one-dimensional, to let Denis and Beege and Jane become more full characters and devote more time to their stories. 
once I started thinking of them as people and not just bad guys to drive the plot, it was very easy to write something that was novel length. In fact, I wound up cutting down quite a bit. The other thing that made it be a novel instead of a short story was my decision to just do the really cool thing and go into the other world, go into the medicine lands, not just have it be a lurking presence, but just send my characters there and see what sort of awful things would happen to them. Sometimes short stories are just based on an image or an idea or a really bad day in the life of a character. Um, generally, I just, in terms of my process, I just sit down and start writing. Sometimes you have stories that you know are too big to tell as short stories, uh, where there's just, where the whole point is that there's a really intricate plot or that there are a whole lot of characters, things that can only be novels. But my short stories, I tend to focus on one character. I tend to focus on a short period of time. I tend to be kind of a linear thinker, so I tend to focus on, uh, you know, particular events in a particular day. You know, you're, you're supposed to write in short stories about the most important thing that ever happens in the life of your character. So I try to do that in my stories. I try to keep it small. There's also a lot of satisfaction in writing something and having it done in a week or two weeks as opposed to six months uh, and being able to revise it and have it finished and have it out. Also, you build up a lot of momentum when you write novels, at least I do, and after finishing a novel I usually have a lot of steam. I still, you know, I've gotten into the habit of writing a lot, writing every day, and when the book's done you don't want to just stop, so I immediately tend to start spinning off short stories, and I've written some other sort of westerny things in the process of working on Ranger Girl. One of them's in my collection, Little Gods, called uh, Bleeding West, which is sort of prefigures Ranger Girl in a lot of ways. There's a character in it who's similar to the outlaw, and uh, I have a story called uh, Heart and Boot that is about Pearl Hart, the stagecoach robber, who's somebody I came across in researching stuff for Ranger Girl, who had no place in Ranger Girl, but she was so cool I had to write a, write a story about her. Um, now you have a new collection of short stories coming out from Nightshade, is it? I do. I have a collection coming out next July called Heart and Boot and Other Stories. Heart and Boot has been a good little story for me. It was in the Best American Short Stories this year. Michael Chabin selected it, which was a shocking, stunning kind of thing you don't even dare to dream of happening. And I actually thought it was a cruel lie because Michael wasn't the person who told me. Uh, Kelly Link called me up because he she had a story in it and Michael had told her that her story and my story was in it, so she called me and told me, and I thought it was a cruel joke that she was playing on me. Um, but so the, it seemed like a good time to strike while the iron was hot, since I had a story that was suddenly a lot more people were talking about it than I had expected, so I made it sort of the centerpiece of a collection. The thing about Little Gods is it was sort of a miscellany. I had wanted to publish a collection. I easily had enough stories, because I write a lot of stories. Um, so I kind of threw a bunch of stories and some poems together and tried to put my best stuff in it, but it doesn't really have a narrative through line or a heart or a thematic unity to it. So for my next collection, I really wanted to write something that had much more of a thematic unity, so I was able to pick and choose a little more. And Heart and Boot is one of the centerpiece stories, and you know, my editor, Jason at Nightshade, Jason Williams, read the book and called me up and said the thing that struck him about it was that they were all love stories. They weren't all love stories necessarily in which good things happened to the lovers, but they, everybody, even the awful things that characters did, it was all driven by love or by the need for love or by the desire to get over love or to exact revenge on someone you love who betrayed you. Love was the, the centerpiece of that collection. So uh, obviously one of the great themes you can write a lot of diverse stuff about. But I'm very proud of that book. I think it's going to be really good. It's coming out next next July. You're also a reviewer for Locus. Yes. And how long have you been reviewing for Locus? I've been working for Locus uh, since August of 2001. So I've been reviewing pretty much since I started, so about four years. Tell us a little bit about, as you write your fiction, how do you turn off the reviewer? <laughs> um, 
Do some, you? Sometimes it's hard. Yeah, it's. Uh, well, let's see. You write when you're really tired, or when you first woke up, or you know when you've had a couple drinks. Anything to sort of quiet that voice in your head that's telling you you're terrible. Um, I, I I am indebted to the critic and the reviewer who lives in my head when I'm doing revisions because it, it does tend to make my stuff stronger. I can look at it very critically and be very merciless when it comes to cutting stuff that doesn't work. Um, but uh, in writing first draft, I just try to turn it off. I just try and pour stuff out and have fun and be playful and think laterally and take the plot in places I don't expect and inflict horrible things on my characters and let them do unexpected things to one another. Reviewing for me is not... I don't feel that I have any particular calling to be a reviewer. The main reason I review stuff at Locus is because we don't really have a dedicated horror reviewer at this point. Ed Bryant used to review for us, and Ed was wonderful, wrote great reviews. I mean, his reviews were often more entertaining than the books he was reviewing. But uh, in recent years, he hasn't been reviewing for me, so I was noticing that Caitlin Kiernan books were coming in and nobody was reviewing them. Joe Lansdale novels were coming in, nobody was reviewing them. You know, really good horror anthologies were coming in and nobody was doing them. I'm a horror fan, so I sort of stepped up. That's mostly what I do. I review maybe 10 or 12 books a year. It's not a huge time commitment. Usually it's stuff I want to read anyway. So, you know, 500 words doesn't take that long to write. Now, what else do you do at Locust? Um, I'm, well, I write about dead people. I do pretty much all the obituaries, and this has been a bad week for that with Bob Sheckley passing away right. yesterday morning. Agent Dan Hooker died recently. Uh, Jay and Williamson, the horror writer, died last week. I mean, it's been, it's been a very busy week, and it can be kind of a bummer. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Locust is important to the field, I think, and it's a chance to give a nice send-off to people who've contributed to the field. You know, I sort of feel like I am, in a way, doing something important. Writing the obituaries is probably, it may sound morbid, but it's probably my favorite part. I feel like it's one of the more important things we do. You know, you try and, it's, it's hard to encapsulate somebody's life, but you try and recognize and honor the contribution that they made to the field and run some nice pictures of them with other famous people and get appreciations from their friends so that they can give them a send-off in the public, you know. Uh, doing obituaries is, is one of it feels important to me other stuff that I do I help edit the interviews uh, I write the interview intros <clears throat> which I'm sure authors would be thrilled to know uh, are essentially obituaries you just change the tenses uh, you just try and write about all the accomplishments that they made or still making since we interview people who are still alive um, and I, I also do production I do layout I'm colorblind which kept me from being a real graphic designer unfortunately but it's not so important at Locust, so I do a lot of the layout and a lot of the production stuff, uh, which I love doing. My favorite thing, apart from writing, is to do layout, is to put stuff together. That's pretty much why I started a zine, and we're actually going to start publishing chapbooks next year, just because when I don't feel like writing, what I usually feel like doing is playing with layout and text and fonts and putting stuff together and making books. So, What zine do you publish? Uh, it's a little zine called Flytrap. Oh, okay. It's been coming out since we've had four issues. Our fifth issue was supposed to come out in November, but my wife and I decided we should get married instead. She's my co-editor, Heather Shaw. We got married instead of doing Flytrap 5, so it'll be out next May. It's been really great. It's been a good zine. We're, we're in that sort of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and we feel like we have a lot of peers. Say is a wonderful zine, and Electric Velocipede, Journal of Pulse Pounding Narratives, alas, is no more, but it was a great zine. Well, you know, and because we don't really care about money, we do it for love, we do it for fun, we can be playful, we can buy weird stuff, we can do weird stuff with layout, you know, we really enjoy ourselves, it's it's a lot of fun. We're going to do a chapbook next May for a writer named Jen Reese, 
did this wonderful series of short shorts called uh, Tales of the Chinese Zodiac that was up at the online magazine Strange Horizons. They ran a story a month for this whole year. So we're going to collect them along with some new stories about the Chinese Zodiac. And she's a great artist, too, so the layout should be a lot of fun. We're hoping that'll be out next May, too, along with Flytrap 5. As a member of the Locust staff, you're, you really have a, a lot of influence and, and, and I think, uh, oversight of, of the science fiction field. Tell us a little bit about where you think the field of science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy is headed. It seems to be more prevalent within commercial culture these days. That's definitely true. Uh, one of the things that we do at Locus is we try to keep an eye on mainstream publishing and find stuff that might appeal to science fiction and fantasy readers, stuff that's not being published as science fiction. Books like The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger was huge, uh, but it wasn't something that was published as science fiction or fantasy. Salman Rushdie has magical stuff in his books, but people don't notice it. Michael Chabon publishes stuff, you know, but he he has a great affection for the genre. Uh, Alice Siebold's Lovely Bones was a ghost story, you know. So we look for stuff that's outside. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro has a book called Never Let Me Go that's about clones. It's about cloning people and using their body parts to replace your running down body parts. It's published as mainstream fiction. You know, you look at movies, which always lag 50 years behind written science fiction, but it's gotten to the point where stuff like spaceships and elves, I mean, the Lord of the Ring movies were huge. I any sense that there was that liking stories about elves and dwarves and trolls was a weird little niche thing, those are gone. You know, Lord of the Rings movies were huge. So a lot of this stuff has entered mainstream culture, which I think bothers some people in science fiction. Uh, a lot of people, I don't know, it's a nice club and it's an intimate little group and you can kind of count on having read a lot of the same books and having common ground to talk about. And then you get people coming along who say they love science fiction and fantasy when all they know about it is the movies. I think there's an understandable sort of backlash against that, you know, in the field. People who feel like, well, you have no right to say that you like science fiction and fantasy because all you know is the Lord of the Ring movies and Star Wars. Well, there's some justification to that, I guess. There is a lot more to it than that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. One of the problems, oddly, with Locus with working there every day and reading so much of the news story, I don't, you'd think I'd have a better sense of the overview, but I actually feel like I'm surrounded by the minutia, you know? You hear from people saying, fantasy's taken over everything, science fiction's dead, oh, look, uh, the, the last four Hugos have gone to fantasy novels and stuff like that. And the, then at the same time, I look at people saying, oh, you know, singularity, the singularity, stories about the singularity are huge, you know, those are gonna be great. And the new space opera in the UK is this amazing thing. It's a, you know, it's being, it's popular and people are starting to care about space again. And all oh, science fiction novels are selling like crazy in China because who knows why, perhaps because they're, they have the most sophisticated manned space travel in the world at this point, you know. Yeah. That's true. China SF is big in China. That's what I've heard. I've heard it's getting bigger and bigger in China. That uh, uh, science fiction stuff is starting to sell more. That science fiction movies are becoming much more popular there. Is this translated or original, or both? Mostly translated, I think. Uh, I don't know much about the original SF scene over there, unfortunately. Every once in a while, we try to run international reports. We get get reports from far flung correspondents. So it's kind of interesting to see how stuff is doing in other parts of the world. We mostly hear about uh, we hear about China a fair bit. My boss went there not too long ago, and we hear from uh, we hear from Israel pretty often. Really interesting stuff in Israel. Really, what ha what's happening? Really there? interesting. Well, near future science fiction stuff. Uh, I mean, tensions are of course always high. I'm I'm not an expert on the situation in the Middle East, but we're starting to hear a little bit about Arab science fiction and stuff written you know from the Palestinian point of view. When you look at the Middle East, if you're looking for interesting places to write near future science fiction to extrapolate stuff that might happen, I mean, this is, they're, they're building walls over there, you know? There's weird stuff happening over there. So 
I, I don't know. I'm the problem is not much of it gets translated into English. It's really a kind of a bummer because we get these reports and read about you know the hot young novelists over there whose names are mostly escaping me at the moment, but they're people who mostly aren't being translated, so I can't see what's so great about them, you know? I, I, don't, I don't get the opportunity to experience their greatness, is what I mean. Now you have a, the short story collection coming up. Do you have another novel in the hopper? Yeah, novels are sort of floating around. Um, I have a novel called Blood Engines that I just finished the, hopefully, final draft of that I sent off to my agent last week, and uh, we're going to talk about it next week, actually, and figure out, I don't know, it, Ranger Girl was a very emotionally draining book to me, so this next book is called uh, Blood Engines, and it my goal with it was to write a book that was just fun and full of ass-kicking and monsters and cool stuff and eyeball kicks and weird shit, and oh. so it's got consensual cannibalism, and it's got mysterious secret trains under San Francisco, and tiny poisonous yellow frogs, and giant monsters, and oracles, and ex-gay homeless movie actors, and still gay, still homeless, ex-movie actor, stuff like that. Uh, and it was the whole goal of it was just to write a book that would really thrill me and be a lot of fun and that I would look forward to sitting down and writing every day. So it's very different from Ranger Girl, so I have to figure out what to do with it. And I am currently embroiled in a novel that I'm tentatively calling The Light of a Better World, which is about uh, bridges and persistent suicidal ideation, uh, but isn't that much of a downer, really. Uh, <laughs> It also has car chases and chrome-plated shotguns and stuff. So Any monsters? Uh, it's got some monsters. The most dangerous monsters in that book look like people, uh, are people. You have but some great monsters in Ranger Girl, and thanks. I'm a fan of monsters. So I love, love monsters, too. So tell me a little bit about what do you do with monsters? What makes What excites you about a monster? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, as a kid, you grow up... I, uh, as a kid, I was a very precocious reader. You know, I was reading adult stuff from about third grade on, you know, and I read a lot of horror. I was a precocious reader, but in terms of emotions, I was still a kid. So I'm reading, like, the entirety of Stephen King when I'm 9 or 10, you know? And in the middle of the night when you're 9 or 10, you still really believe in monsters, you know? It's still really scary. So uh, that, so that's always stuck with me. I always I try and reach back to that feeling of something that... The best monsters, I think, are both alien and recognizable. They remind you a little of something that is in your life, or they remind you a little of yourself. It's been said that the scarier, scariest monsters are all part human. So there's some there's some fun monsters in Ranger Girl. There's herds of skeletal buffalo, which I find really creepy. Because if there's any species, any 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 creature, any group of creatures that has a right to be really pissed about how their kind were done during the Wild West, you know, Native Americans, yes, but buffalo, man, if they ever returned, they, they could certainly have some issues to work out. The Egyptian gods I find really fascinating. Uh, one of the elements in Ranger Girl is there's this cafe called Genius Losi, based very loosely on Cafe Pergolisi, uh, and every room has murals. There was an artist named Garamond Ray who during the 70s and 80s was kind of not really, but in the world of the novel, this fictional character, Garamond Ray, was sort of well-known as an artist, and he did these murals all over Santa Cruz. Uh, he didn't, and so he fills this cafe with murals, and one of the rooms is sort of done as a street cafe scene, but everybody who's sitting at the cafe tables are Egyptian gods, you know, so you have Ra and Thoth and Sekhmet and all these sort of scary animal-headed creatures, and of course I couldn't resist at one point in the novel having them come to life and step off the wall and interact with my characters, so that was a lot of fun. We've been speaking with Tim Pratt. His new novel from Bantam Spectra is The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me.